episode 371, Buy and Bill versus Pharmacy Bagging. Which is better for a plan sponsor and patients? Today I speak with Eric Davis and Autumn Youngchu. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. So this is a 400 level episode in specialty pharmacy options for plan sponsors, meaning here is your prerequisites. You got to know what buy-in bill is and you got to know what pharmacy bagging is, meaning white bagging, for example. If you do not, I would listen to Encore episode 282 with Dr. Aaron Mitchell, where we go deep on buy-in bill and then listen to episode 369 for the skinny on pharmacy bagging. If you already know what buy-in bill is and you already know what white bagging is, then not only do you know more than 98% of the people in the healthcare industry, but also you're going to get as much out of this conversation with Eric Davis and Autumn Yangchu as I did. Last week's show was also with Eric Davis and Autumn Yangchu. Last week, we talked about how some hospitals and cancer centers are managing to ring up up to six times the cost of an expensive already injected or infused drug through buy and bill. This is why pharmacy bagging became a thing. If we want to talk about this in a historical perspective, it's a direct market response to buy and bill. Hospital systems start making egregious amounts of money, marking up drugs that already cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and their markups are hundreds of thousands of dollars. On top of that, hospital starts making a fortune off of drug markups. Plan sponsors need an alternative and enter pharmacy bagging, i.e. carving out specialty pharmacy drugs to a PBM. In this show, we compare the potential benefits and problematic loopholes and or patient concerns for plan sponsors who are trying to figure out whether to carve out specialty pharmacy benefits to a PBM or grin and bear it with a buy-in bill. Or as another option, whether to steer patients to specific infusion centers or specific provider organizations that might have more favorable contract terms for the plan sponsor. Or hooking up with a home infusion company, again, who is willing to negotiate terms that might be far better for said plan sponsor than just letting some hospital have their way with employees in the health plan. As another alternative, of course, plan sponsors could consider medical travel, which some certainly are. My biggest takeaway from this whole conversation and from the episodes that we have had in this, dare I call it, series about pharmacy benefits, starting with the show with Scott Haas, where we talked about PBM contracts, moving to the show with Dr. Aaron Mitchell, where we talked about buy-in bill, then going to the show with Keith Hartman, where we talked about pharmacy bagging, then last week's show, how hospitals managed to buy and bill at 6x the price of it, these expensive pharmaceuticals. My takeaway from this whole specialty drug extravaganza is that specialty drug procurement is very different than retail drug procurement. Retail drugs, you worry about them en masse at scale almost at the population level. Specialty drugs, you can have one patient on a specialty drug and that one patient costs as much as the entire rest of the member population combined. 
So managing specialty drugs and their administration becomes almost a case-by-case operation. What drug is it? Where is the patient? What options are available? It's possible to save hundreds of thousands of dollars on that one patient for that one patient's care and get better patient outcomes by getting the right patient on the right drug that is administered in the right setting. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Eric Davis and Autumn Young Chu, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having us, Stacey. Thanks, Stacey. What we're, <laughs> we're talking about right now is not a secret, like many people have realized it, especially employers. Many of them have started to say, like, hey, we're not, we can't afford this. Like, 6x the cost of a drug that costs six figures already is a whole lot of money. So what we're going to do is we're going to carve out specialty pharmacy and make it part of the pharmacy benefit, the old so-called white bagging. And there's a lot of patient concerns with that, which you know I talked about with Keith Hartman in an earlier episode. But just from a financial perspective, if I carve out these specialty pharmacy products, which are infused and make them a pharmacy benefit, what are my chances that I'm going to save money? It really depends on the contract. But if you go back 20 years when specialty pharmacy created a beachhead, they were saving significant amounts of money by becoming an alternative to what was being charged in the hospitals. And that's ultimately how specialty pharmacy got its start, by being able to provide a cost basis that was significantly lower than what um, the physician or the hospital was providing in that setting at the time. Today, it's become more competitive. Yeah, so it sounds like the bar was was pretty low. <laughs> I mean, if you you have these hospital (laughs) systems that are charging like 600%, if if I'm a PBM trying to make a use case, like relatively speaking, it wouldn't sound like it would be much of a challenge to consistently provide a, a lower price point. Potentially, but when you look at, let's say it's an oncologist and that oncologist is making $500 for their office visit, and they're making $5,000 for the administration of the drug. If I'm negotiating, let's say, with the physician and their cost basis of their drug is X, and I can get it for lower in a specialty setting, and that's then lower the overall cost of the medication as well. You can create a incentive for the physician to do the right thing. If they won't, and you have alternatives outside of that setting, like an infusion center, then you use that as leverage as well to press the issue. So the point is that even if you as a plan sponsor aren't planning to go the white bagging pharmacy benefit route, you can use it for leverage to get physicians and hospitals to do the right thing and lower their possibly outrageous markups. That being said, in today's market, just right out of the gate, with whatever standard contracts typically are in place, will I save by moving to white bagging versus whatever normally goes on in buy and bill in a local market, meaning not controlling like anything at all? So white bagging versus complete inaction on the part of the plan sponsor. In that binary scenario, will I save money by white bagging? Yes, you will more than likely save money in today's environment, but you still have to look at what the unit cost is in the hospital setting versus what you can get from that specialty pharmacy. 
So it definitely sounds like it's not just a, a blanket statement that what I have to then do is compare, figure out what that local hospital was charging me or the local oncologist, right? And then compare that to what the specialty pharmacy wants to charge me, maybe on a drug by drug basis. Yep. And you also need to understand that with some of these drugs, you're dealing with very vulnerable people and there's clinical applications to the site of administration. So you don't know if you're going to have to be negotiating specifically with that hospital to use the pricing of the specialty pharmacy or if you have alternatives. So there's variables you have to look at when you're making these decisions. You have to really understand what the care setting is for the individual patient. From where I sit, what wound up happening was hospitals were just way overcharging. Plan sponsors started to get really, whoa, that's one laser claim after another. (laughs) My stop loss is now shot because just all of these really high priced inpatient and outpatient claims were hitting their plans. So PBM swoop in, knight in shining armor. Hey, we're going to reduce your specialty pharmacy spend, you know, again, irrespective of all the issues with with white bagging and whatnot. Go back and listen to the show with Keith Hartman for more on how all of this affects the patient and the quality of care. But then what started to happen, it sounds like, is that the specialty pharmacies and the PBM started to run their own kinds of games so that now the PBMs are charging maybe pretty much also for those specialty pharmacy products. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, I think you've seen some of that going on. You've also seen hospitals looking at alternative methods of purchasing as well, in effect, almost forming their own type of specialty pharmacy type of solution. You look at the administration of the medications as well and the costs of that, depending on setting. So yes, it varies a lot. It has a lot to do with what you find in contract and what you're able to negotiate in rebate yield, because you have to look at that net of the gross cost and make sure that you've looked at the whole picture when you're making decisions like that. These days, it's not just a like, hey, this isn't the best strategy. Like if I'm just comparing these two strategies in our reductive, simplified little world that we're talking about right now, but if I'm just comparing, you know, administering in a health system versus going through my PBM and carving out the specialty pharmacy, it's not like one is better than the other point blank. Like you have to dig in making sure that you really understand what the contract terms, the terms and conditions that are in the contract. Scott Haas, your colleague, talks about this in really great detail. The importance of really spending the time to not only sign contracts with fair terms, then it sounds like depending on the unique hospital health system that you're talking to and the PBM, like it could go either way. They've all started inbreeding. <laughs> so they're all married now. <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth of it. Meaning the, the PBM and the specialty pharmacy and the insurance carrier are all under one roof. They've all consolidated into ginormous entities with one Wall Street ticker symbol, you know. And then on the other hand, you've got the clear bagging and the gold bagging where the pharmacy is owned by or partially at least owned by uh, the hospital system. So again, one balance sheet at the end of the day. So when you have the conversation around side of care, which one's better, you know, is it better in specialty pharmacy or in an outpatient setting or even a physician's office? The way claims get paid, they get paid based on your insurance carrier contracts or your PBM contracts. When your insurance carrier is married to your PBM, it doesn't matter where the money goes. It's still going to the same place. It still goes to the same house. I mean, that's ultimately what's happening now. They're all one in the same. 
if the insurance company and the PBM are under one roof, which at this point is true for like all the biggies, then nobody is robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're like robbing Peter to pay Peter. Just to add to what you had said, Stacy, about our colleague, Scott. Scott Haas from, that was episode 365. When we're talking about contract and understanding the variables within that, if there's one thing within that agreement that's non-objective and you weren't focusing on it, you were focusing on another area, then there's opportunity to game you. That's the key is you need to have a collective understanding of every variable that might impact you when you're making those types of decisions. So what I'm understanding is like, it's like squeezing a balloon. And if you focus on reducing this area of spend and and all eyes of the plan sponsor on just that one area with these large vertically integrated entities that include the PBM and the carrier, right? Like they can easily figure out how to, like I just saw the other day that one of the Buka plans was taking a loss, was taking as a medical expense, the overpayments that they were making to the PBM, which was within the, the, the same umbrella, right? So like they're including as a operating loss or in their medical expense, the profit that they're giving to the PBM, which is owned by that carrier. Oh my gosh. Yes. That happens in so many areas, Stacey. That's a whole nother podcast topic for you. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a podcast series. (laughs) We could go on here for a while. I think the point that you're making is that because there are so many pockets of activity that go on with these vertically integrated entities, unless you as a plan sponsor really understand all of the different little hidey holes of of, of profit, if you focus on one, they're just going to move the dollars someplace else. And specifically as it relates to the specialty pharmacy versus hospital system match that we've got going on right here that we're talking about, like which one is better for a plan sponsor... It could be either, as you said, if the hospital has recognized that they are in a competitive environment and maybe they stood up their own specialty pharmacy inside the hospital system, for example, or maybe they have created some favorable terms in some way because they're competing against these PBMs who are revenue maximizers, right? Like you have to really look at all kind of aspects of this to figure out which one might be better at this point. Yes, those types of strategies are not static. So when you think that you might have one of those water balloons completely covered to where it's not squeezing out anymore, they just go build another water balloon. So let's add another variable here. A lot of plan sponsors are now using infusion centers. So they're basically moving the care setting. They're telling patients that they no longer can get their infusion or injection in the hospital setting that they have to go to an identified outpatient infusion center to receive the drug instead. So this is not a carving out to the pharmacy benefit. This is not letting whatever hospital inject the drug wherever the patient has happens to be or go. They're having patients go to specified infusion centers or maybe doing home infusions with specified provider organizations. What do you have to say about that strategy in absolute terms or in relative terms compared to the other two? Let me give you an example of one of those, Stacey. About six years ago, I had requested one of our health plans to do exactly this for one of our clients. And their argument was that if there was anything that was clinically averse that occurred with the patient, that they would be 
looked at publicly in a negative manner. So it took me three years to finally get them to agree to move it. And the reason that it took them so long, the plan sponsor was like super concerned about the legality of intervening into this whole financially toxic for everyone mess. When they moved it, the cost basis of that drug went from $1.1 million to $600,000 a year in an infusion center from the acute hospital setting that it was in. Two years after that, they had been reviewing that medication compared to alternatives in the marketplace and moved them to another drug that lowered that cost to $400,000 a year. I don't know that either one of those things would have been done had they stayed in the hospital inpatient setting because there was no motivation or incentive for that hospital to do it. So it's a good example of a success story. And we think that you, like we talked about before, you have to look at them case by case, but it's certainly a vehicle that can improve the cost basis quite substantially in the right opportunities. Reiterating what you just said there, Eric, these drugs are super expensive. In this example, we have a patient getting a drug that costs over a million dollars. So spending a little bit of time here doing a little bit of comparison shopping could really be in order. That juice is certainly worth the squeeze in the case of a plan who saved half a million dollars right out of the gate, like 1.1 million in spend down to 600. My biggest takeaway, though, it sounds like what these plan sponsors who actually shop are doing is creating a competitive environment. And as anyone, you know, who took Econ 101 knows, competition is the invisible hand that keeps costs in check. Does what I described happen often? Or how could this go awry that a plan sponsor really needs to watch out for if someone is looking to stimulate competition in their local marketplace? The plan sponsor comes to their consultant or their broker and asks them to do it. And then that consultant or broker, if they're not really ingrained as risk managers are relying on that carrier to do it. So it's kind of a vicious circle in the wrong setting. (laughs) And furthermore, what I have heard in a couple of marketplaces is that the payers themselves again, who are consolidated with these PBMs, have started to set up their own ambulatory surgical centers, as well as infusion centers, as well as buying companies that do home infusions. It sounds like there is a lot of money to be made that everybody has realized in this specialty pharmacy market. And everyone is stepping over themselves in order to figure out how to make themselves attractive to plan sponsors, some of them by lowering costs, some of them by standing up things which sound a whole lot like the thing that people have heard is a good strategy, but doesn't necessarily mean that it is just because it's called by the same name. Like this can get very confusing depending on the structure, like who actually owns that infusion center, for example. And my personal opinion of that strategy, Stacey, is because consultants that are looked at by the plan sponsor as the experts haven't educated themselves enough to be able to go in and manage that and make sure that they're evaluating it properly. And that's part of the problem. It's not just the plan sponsor not being educated enough. It's it's also the consultant that they've hired that they believe is supposed to be that isn't. Or it's the person that's running the analytics that actually doesn't understand what they're doing because healthcare data is so complex and it's built that way on purpose. But but there's so much money to be made in this space in healthcare. Healthcare is still one of the only industries that I know of that doesn't actually have any real transparency or any or even close to it. We keep talking about it, but the truth is transparency in this space is really just a buzz term that's used to take your eye off the ball. 
<laughs> that's kind of what's and been it's happening. also been used to parallel to lowest cost and in reality it's not when you say that transparency is used to take your eye off the ball what what do you mean by that i think it is been used as a marketing term that implies lowest cost and that's what i mean by it's taking people's eye off the ball by saying, oh, that's a transparent contract. Therefore, it's the lowest cost in the marketplace. It implies that. And in many cases, it's not the lowest cost opportunity in the marketplace. Right. And hospitals being required to post their charge masters, I think that implies that there's now this new transparency. But if the hospital posts their charge masters and then can change their charge masters, but they don't have to update or notify anybody, is that really transparency? So it kind of creates this illusion of intention to provide a fair price up front when to a certain extent, it's a false front, right? Like, you know, you see this number and you're like, oh, wow, they gave us the price up front. Isn't that great? But then you start to realize that maybe they'll just use a different code or whatever. Like there's all these machinations that are going on behind the, it's like a, what do they call it? The mechanical Turk, right? (laughs) There's all this stuff that's going on under the desk, as it were, that it seems all streamlined and and upfront on top, but you don't know what's what's in the black box. Given all this, what is really required here is this is a whole thing to dig into all of these various contract terms and all of these different options in order to pick the best one of the various options that may be on the table here, number one, but then number two, to audit to make sure that contracting terms have actually been followed. Do you have anything that you want to add to that? Yeah. You know, we look at ourselves as very specialized in risk management and looking at things from the ground up. So while we are licensed brokers, that's an end to a means for us. And what you said resonates with me very well in that the typical broker who is generally the one that a plan sponsor looks to as the expert isn't well equipped to be able to come in and attack certain strategies around this. This is such a messed up place to be. There's just no, there's just really way too much money to be made here. Do you have an estimation of what that money amount is? Like, I mean, you don't necessarily have this many players exerting this much effort. They're tripping all over themselves in order to get these patients. Like, Let's put that into perspective, though, because, you know, I mean, a lot of these drugs is the same manufacturer. You have to ask yourself, why is it that we're paying in the U.S. like, you know, eight to 10 times the cost that we would charge in another country. It makes no sense. Let's put it into a a perspective. So let's say you go into a particular average size regional health system and they're generating a billion dollars in gross revenue. They're a not-for-profit health system that starts at a 30% gross margin. So they have a $300 million gross margin that has to become not-for-profit in any given year. So you can kind of figure out how much they have to play with to continue to qualify as not-for-profit when they have a $300 million gross margin, where if you go into a typical mom-and-pop-owned organization within that same regional, and they're probably at a single-digit gross margin. So that's me getting maybe up on my high horse a little bit. It's very frustrating to me. And you multiply that by how many regional health systems are in the country, and you can find out pretty quickly how much money we're talking about. 
effectively what you're saying is that that 300 million from that local regional health system, a lot of that profit could be, or margin, whatever you want to call it, it's the same thing, attributable to how good they are at getting, like specialty drugs are a large chunk of the profits that hospital systems are currently making. Is that what we're saying? Yes. You multiply the margins profits of all of the health systems across the country and you can start to to see the billions and billions of dollars that can be attributed to this. Absolutely. Yeah. And take it a step further to where you were going, Stacy, earlier on. Let's say that health system may be owned by a certain organization who also owns the pharmacy. That health system is now buying it from that pharmacy at a premium, knowing that they could have gotten it somewhere else, but they don't because they're buying it from themselves. It gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And we, <laughs> if I'm a plan sponsor and I really get my hands on that around this, how much money or what percentage could I likely save if I'm your average plan, say? Oh, so let's say an average plan with 1,000 employees is about $10 million spend on their health plan. It's not unusual for about 30% of that to be drugs, maybe more, depending on how much they have in specialty drugs. And in today's environment, specialty drugs is now half of that. So that's one and a half million dollars that would be specialty drugs. You, you potentially have an opportunity, let's say on that, to lower your costs three to 500,000 on that one and a half million. But it's case by case because it's, it's more about real large cost drugs you're looking at rather than a broader base reduction of the averages. So instead of having some gigantic claim, maybe I could make that a third of that if I manage this well and I am steering the patients to the best care setting. Is that what you're saying? That's that's true, Stacey. And, and it's becoming really problematic for smaller employers. I, I had a, a 250 employee employer that was running just fine. And then they had one individual who was a hemophiliac that had a blood factor product that cost so much that that one individual cost more than the other 249 employees. So it, it, it in effect, put that company out of business. Wow. The context is unlike like retail pharmacy or, or your generic spend, which is driven by volume here, is driven by whether or not you have certain members on your plan that are taking a very high cost specialty drug. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in these types of situations and many times become case by case managed and understanding what your opportunities are, whether it's to negotiate lower costs with the hospital, whether it's to leverage a specialty pharmacy, whether it's move settings. You have to look at all of those alternatives to find out what's going to be the best opportunity. And in one employer, it may be one individual that you're focusing on. In another employer, it might be 10. So it, it really is more case by case and specific to individuals that have unique disease states that you have to be cognizant of that as well as you're looking at these alternatives. Okay. Yeah, and it's very local. Healthcare is very local. You have to keep that in mind as well. If you're in a very rural area, you, you know, you may not have the same opportunities as another employer might be that's more, you know, so those are things that you have to keep in mind too. It's, it is it is very case by case, but it comes down to your risk appetite and how, how far you're really willing to go as a plan sponsor. 
So it sounds like if I'm a plan sponsor, one of the things that I can do is look is identify my really, really high cost claimants who are taking these specialty pharmacy meds and then do a deep dive into exactly what's going on in that circumstance. I, in fact, heard that exact same analogy before where there was one employee on one drug that wound up costing as much as everybody else in the entire plan. It was hundreds of other people. So it definitely sounds like getting ahead of this is something that would make a ton of sense so that when that situation emerges, you're not trying to retroactively negotiate bills. You have the plan of action all figured out and you know exactly what the best way is for that particular individual to get the drugs and the care that they need. Because a lot of times also, this is very time sensitive, right? Like you can't be doing all this math like while the cancer patient is waiting for their therapy. It's something that in some situations we don't even have an option that would be good for that right now. So we need to do things as an industry and as a people to solve these things sooner rather than later. There needs to be continuous watching too. It's not something that you check once a year and then kind of let it go away. It's something that you have to, as a plan sponsor, really continue to monitor it throughout the plan year because fee schedules change, prices change, average sales prices change from quarter, sometimes monthly, and new games come in into play at any point in given time. So you have to continuously monitor the activity that's happening on your plan. The more you know, the better equipped you're going to be to handle these scenarios as they pop up. They pop up so fast, it's almost impossible to kind of wrap your hands around all of it. But as a plan sponsor, the laws are starting to change. We are starting to see things go into place like that's requiring these, you know, big plans to release their data to create a little bit more transparency. I am really hopeful for that because what that's doing is that's, that's kind of putting a little bit of power back into the consumer's hands. Don't be afraid to ask the question. Don't be afraid to ask for the information that you need because it's, if you're the plan sponsor, it's your information. They're going to push back, but it's your information. You're the consumer. You're the one that's paying it. It's You have every right to that information. So I think there's big opportunity to make big changes, but you really have to do it. But you really sort of have to be brave and do it and not be afraid to ask the question. We're all stupid in this space. And if I'm an employer feeling like my back is against the wall with all of this, is there some really aggressive option? Like, what do I do if I'm just feeling beyond stupid and I have no place to go? More aggressive employers are looking at alternatives. Those alternatives are purchasing drugs from Canada. Those alternatives might be going abroad to get medications. Certainly there's concerns about is the clinical advocacy of that in place. But at the same time, if it is and you're confident in that, the cost basis outside of the United States for the same medications is so much lower. And being able to utilize that to put pressure on what we're doing domestically, I think should be something we continue to look at closer so that we're able to start to see alternatives for ourselves here as well. Since in most cases, we're the ones manufacturing it, even though we're paying the freight of the cost basis and the rest of the world is benefiting from much lower costs for the same medication. There's definitely incentive to really look into this and really think hard and identify the best care setting or design for both that employee. And as we all know, financial toxicity is is clinical toxicity. There was a study that came out recently that showed that by 2030, a leading cause of death is going to be non-compliance because people are abandoning therapies because they can't afford to pay for them. So this (laughs) is just sad. It's true though. It is really true. 
That's not a new thing either. It seems like that's been a part of people not taking their chronic medications that aren't specialty for years as well. It's already happening. Either that or just, you know, these people end up not being able to afford it or, you know, they get really sick and so they get off the plan and then they get on Medicaid. And, you know, we as taxpayers fund Medicaid. So, I mean, the the, the dollar circle, whether, whether people realize it or not, you know. Yeah, and can, you know, just talking about Medicaid, there is just a, a numerous states that are suing their Medicaid PBM for the same kinds of shenanigans that we're talking about, you know, slightly different oh, flavors, absolutely. same job. General idea. If someone is interested in learning more about the work that you're doing over at USI Managed Care Consulting, where would you direct them for more information? So we've provided our LinkedIn information, both Autumn and I have, and then you can reach me at eric.davis at usi.com or autumn.yongchu, Y-O-N-G-C-H-U at usi.com. Eric Davis and Autumn Youngchu, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks, Stacey. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.